This episode has been brought to you by Always Discreet. Head to alwaysdiscreet.com.au to learn more about bladder leak tips, management, and incredible bladder leak protection. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I am so excited to bring this episode to you today. We are talking about diastasis rectus abdominis. It is something that has been close to my heart for 12 years. And when I found someone on Twitter who is in the trenches of research in it, I contacted him and got him to come onto the podcast and share so much brilliant information. We talk about the research that has been done, that's already out there, what we are lacking, David Larson, if you don't know who he is, he's a lecturer and coordinator in the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University. He's earned a doctoral degree in health science, a master's degree in kinesiology, and a bachelor's degree in kinesiology. His research is primarily focused on conservative management modalities such as abdominal strength training for the postpartum condition, diastasis recti. He's a certified strength and conditioning specialist, a certified pre and postnatal coach, a certified level two nutrition coach through Precision Nutrition. He specializes in pre and postnatal training, youth athletic performance and strength and conditioning and has over 10 years of experience in the fitness and sport performance industry and just has the coolest information and ideas that obviously I love because I'm biased because I feel very similar to the way that he feels. So I really hope that everybody gets a lot of information out of this. He's talking about kind of what diastasis is at the beginning But a big part of the research surrounding, um, you know, how to test it and what we should be measuring, his focus in his research was actually patient satisfaction. So aside from all the stuff that we think we are doing to help people, well, how much um, benefit do they feel it's helped them and how happy are they with what we have done? And that was a big focus of his research. So I'm going to stop talking so everyone can just enjoy it. I don't often see men going into diastasis work, especially the academic side. So I'm, I'm so excited to hear everything that you've learned and, and tell us if we're in like a whole new space or not. Yeah, it, it's a fair question because to be honest, about three years ago, I had never even heard of the condition. So uh, my background is more in strength and conditioning. So. I did my undergrad at ASU at Arizona State um, in kinesiology. Uh, I went on to get my CSCS certification and I started mostly doing personal training. And I decided to do a master's degree, went on, did a master's degree in kinesiology. And it was all about sports science for me. And I, you know, I continued personal training through all of that. And then I got into teaching after getting my master's degree. So I started teaching at AT Still um, in their kin program and then also at Arizona State. Um, And then kind of worked my way into a lecturer position over time. And once I did that, I decided I liked academia and wanted to do a doctorate. And it was just about that time where I was starting my doctorate when my wife uh, gave birth to our first son. And So I I remember coming home one day and this was, you know, several weeks after, um, after he was born and she was all upset and she was, was just really worked up and and keep in mind, she's an ex state champion for, um, in the 800 meter, just super athlete. I mean, she works out seven days a week, you know, run and weight train, just incredible athlete. And 
she's just all upset and you know i'm like what's wrong and she starts telling me about all these articles she's been reading about how she has this this gap in her abdomen and she couldn't figure out you know you know what to do about it and that she's never going to be able to do pull-ups and never going to be able to do direct ab training anymore and i'm like what this is crazy like where are you reading this and i you know i'd never heard of this before so I, I started reading, I was like, oh, wow, like, look at all these articles telling you not to do this stuff. I've never, how have I never heard of this? Being and, like strength and conditioning background and have never heard of it. Exactly. Yeah. And so I had to start doing some more research on this, right? So I, um, you know, I started searching the scholarly literature because I thought, you know, this is just bizarre. Like I've never heard not to train your abs like this. And what I started to notice was that what I was finding in the literature just didn't match up to what I was hearing um, from physios that I talked to, that I was hearing um, or reading in NPR articles and various blogs. And I just thought that some of the stuff I was reading just didn't make much sense uh, based on my background knowledge of, on you know muscle physiology and things like that. So I decided I wanted to investigate this more. So it was just when I was getting into my doctorate and I thought, you know what, this is the perfect topic because it's kind of controversial. There's not enough evidence on it and I kind of want to learn more about it. Um, so again, you know, my background and I guess my biases are that, you know, I, I'm into powerlifting and, and weightlifting and that's kind of been my background. So I'm like about heavy weight training. And so to hear someone say, you'll never lift heavy again, it's like, what? That's crazy to me. So I wanted to learn more about it. And what's interesting is, you know, I started to, to do more research because I was like, this is crazy. Um, I read an NPR article and I have a quote here. It says, you have to be very careful. Please don't ever in your life again do crossover crunches or bicycle crunches. They splay your abs apart in so many ways. Um, WebMD. I thought, oh, WebMD. So you didn't write that? No, no, no. no this okay, is good. an NPR article. Okay. Um, and, and think about, you know, if you just had kids, you have this gap between your abs, you're probably a little bit self-conscious. And now you're reading this as somebody mm -hmm. who's been a lifelong fitness person. And then so you go to WebMD. Okay, let's look into this a little bit more. Um, do be careful with exercise. Some routine fitness moves, including crunches, sit-ups, push-ups, press-ups, front planks, make abdominal separation worse. So can swimming, some yoga poses like downward dog, and doing anything on your hands and knees. And then some trainers may suggest those exercises for women with abdominal separation, not knowing what could happen. Oh, man. So, yeah, like how scared would you be if you have this, right? Another one, this is another blog. Um, you should refrain from twisting. Don't do planks, push-ups, quadruped positions, crunches, traditional abdominal exercises that create extra pressure on the, on, on the condition. This is another, it's another article. Um, avoid heavy lifting. Refrain from anything that builds abdominal pressure. You know, so, so don't you talk read this or laugh. So what can you do? Like what's left over? I mean, I would be scared to death, right? If, yeah. if I was reading this, I'd be like, what can I do? Like I'm gonna start stressing out and worrying. And from a biopsychosocial perspective, of course, this is like everything that you don't want to happen. Yep. Uh, um, this really got me interested because it seemed a little bit controversial and I just, couldn't rationalize these things in my head. So a little bit of background, of course, on, you know, diastasis and, and what it is. It's basically the abdominal separation between the left and the right abdominal wall. Um, and it's been reported that up to 40 to 60% of women uh, will end up with a sustained gap after about eight weeks. And this can continue indefinitely. Um, and sometimes it will resolve naturally and sometimes it won't. You know, those things that I just read in those articles, that's kind of what I consider the mainstream viewpoint. Yeah. 
Um, so what I wanted to see then is how does the literature compare to what the mainstream perspective is? And, you know, when you look at the research, what do you see? Um, first off, there was a study by Benjamin and colleagues from 2014, and they found that just general exercise from a variety of different types will reduce the, the DRA or the diastasis by about 35%. Sorry, and is um, that reducing, are they looking at width of the gap? Is that what they're measuring or? Yes, okay. and it gets a little bit complicated and there's some tricks to, because there's a little bit of a gap there between how we measure and how it's perceived by the patient, I think. And usually what happens in these research studies was we're not actually measuring in a relaxed state, we're measuring in a contracted state. So I think that that's one problem with some of the research right now that we need to be measuring both relaxed and contracted. I don't know about other people's backgrounds. My background as a physio, we've always found it in flexion, but measured it at rest. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. And I don't know if I've always done that. I don't know if that's just the last few years I adapted whatever I was reading and then started mm -hmm. to do that. So the literature, so some of the literature, do they explain how they've measured it, that they're measuring it in flexion sometimes? Yeah, they usually Mostly. measure it in okay. the crook lying position. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, some of them probably have, they all have a little bit different way that they measure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, usually some of them are measuring with the finger method the, yep. and some of them are measuring with the uh, calipers, digital mm. calipers. So there's a, there's a wide variety and, and there's really not enough evidence in this, in this area, yeah. but I'll kind of summarize the evidence that there is. Please. Yeah. Um, and so that's just, just general exercise, right? Nothing too specific. Now we have acute studies and the acute studies are ones that are just looking at what's happening during an exercise. Like if we do an abdominal crunch, what's happening to the, the interrecti distance. And if we do a curl up exercise, uh, Chiarello and colleagues, they found that it narrows as would ex be expected. It narrows the gap. Um, and then if we do an abdominal hollowing exercise, if we, engage the transverse abdominus by drawing in. Um, it was found by Mata and colleagues that this will widen the gap. Um, and this is just happening right there on the spot, right? So this has kind of led to a whole bunch of misinterpretations of, of what that means for yeah. exercise and, and everything. Now we also have a recent, more recent study by Lee and Hodges who basically looked at what happens if you do both at the same time if you draw in while you crunch, what they found is that you, you reduce the distortion of the linea alba. So you have less distortion, um, you have a little bit more tension on the linea alba. Um, so they kind of recommended then that you should hollow and crunch at the same time. Um, I won't get into interpreting that quite yet, but so that's the acute studies of what's happening you know, during exercises. We have chronic studies now, and these are ones that have done a sustained program over say six to eight weeks or so. And then what happens to the, the interrecti distance. Which still isn't that and long. Yeah, most of them aren't that long, yeah. probably not, you know, as long as they should be. But in 2014, uh, Litos, this was a case study um, they reported um, that a progressive individualized exercise program, um, I believe this was mostly using like the noble technique and some various other exercises, which is um, where you kind of, you, you push together the, the abdomen together. Mm, yep. So you're basically manually narrowing the gap and then doing exercise. Um, they reported uh, a reduction of, of 11.5 centimeters at the umbilicus to about two centimeters. So very good results there, but it was just a case study. Um, Acri and Cuddy, they, they found that abdominal strength training with bracing. So again, kind of a way to push together the abdomen that was effective at reducing the DRA. Those were kind of some basic studies. They've done a few more, more advanced training studies. And these ones, they did more of a traditional abdominal training program. So they did 
three sets of 10 of things like abdominal crunches, posterior pelvic tilts, uh, Kegels, Russian twists. So that was the traditional treatment group. They compared that to a supine training group who did things like planks, uh, posterior pelvic, pelvic tilts, Kegels, and Russian twists. Um, they each did three sets of 10 of those. And you know, basically, they found that both were effective um, at, at improving outcomes and reducing the interacting distance. Sorry, what were, um, the two, what were those two groups again? There was the group doing the Russian twists planks. Yeah, so we had a traditional treatment group, which was yeah. three sets of 10 okay, of, yeah. um, these, these all had abdominal bracing, yep. um, abdominal crunches, posterior pelvic tilts, yep. eagles, yep. and Russian twists. With the abdominal bracing. With abdominal bracing. And then the other group did the same exercises, but without the bracing? With abdominal bracing as well, but they did supine. So they did, they included planks, um, oh, posterior okay. pelvic tilts, Kegels and Russian twists. So the main difference there was comparing the crunch, like a crunch type exercise uh, with a plank. Okay. Yep. All right. I'm like, sense. wait, I'm trying to imagine this. <laughs> okay. <yep. laughs> yeah. It's kind of complicated. Some you know, differences between the exercise. I tried to really dig into the methods with all of these because yeah. there's such differences with the methods. Yeah. But basically they found that both were very effective. It, there wasn't too much difference between the two types. So basically any one of those is effective. Um, now this study um, was, was pretty interesting. The next two that I'm going to talk about, because they did some pretty rigorous training. Um, they had two groups, and this was uh, El, El Mikaway in 2013. And they took 30 uh, postnatal women, aged 25 to 35. And group A, they used an abdominal belt um, from the second day after delivery. And they wore the belt um, for six weeks and they didn't do any training. Now you have group B and what they did was instead of wearing a belt, they did an abdominal strengthening program. And from the second day postpartum, they, for six weeks, they did static abdominal contractions, posterior pelvic tilts, uh, reverse sit-ups, trunk twists, reverse trunk twists, um, and they held contractions for five seconds, relaxed for 10, and they did 20 repetitions of each of those. So 20 repetitions with five second isometric holds is honestly like a pretty intense program I would consider. Like I, if I did this, I'd be sore. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a pretty rigorous program and starting at day two. Um, day two after having a baby. Yeah. Okay. I was, I was surprised. Um, and they found that that group had a pronounced reduction in waist to hip ratio, interrecti separation, and they had significant increases in abdominal muscle strength, including peak torque, um, maximum repetition, total work and average power. So they had pretty good results. Um, and, and it was much better than just wearing the belt alone. So this kind of gives some credence to the idea that abdominal strengthening, um, you know, is, is a possible, useful. is useful. Exactly. Do they, um, do you know if they ever look at the fitness ability of these women beforehand? They probably never mention that, do they? Like, do you have a cohort of yeah. women who are in that group that are actually really fit before and then the abdominal binding group were all unfit before. We don't really know, right? They never kind of mention those things. Yeah, we don't know. They, they don't talk about it. Um, and uh, I don't know that those studies have really been done. There's only a handful of studies that involve strength training. Um, and there's really just one more um, that I was going to mention. And it was actually a very similar program. Um, they did the three sets of 20 reps, um, five second ISO holds, 
followed by 10 seconds of relaxation. They did this with 40 women, uh, did a three to six month, did this with three to six month postpartum women this time. Okay, that's better. What they did is they compared a deep core program to a traditional program. Um, the deep core program was abdominal bracing and then doing things like diaphragmatic breathing, pelvic floor contraction, planks, and then isometric abdominal contractions. They compared this to a traditional ab training program, which would be things like static contractions, uh, posterior pelvic tilts, reverse sit-ups, trunk twists, and reverse trunk twists. I'm sorry, I, I want to uh, rephrase that. The both both did the traditional program. Yep. The other group added on top of that the deep core exercises. Okay. And they found a superiority in the ones that added the extra deep core work. I don't. Um, so basically, they just did more. Hmm. And they found a superiority in that. Everyone should know this by now. As a physiotherapist, I do not believe in telling women with urinary incontinence just to wear a pad or a liner and keep pushing through. I also don't believe that they have to stop doing the exercise and activities that they love forever in order to manage it. I know how important pelvic floor exercises are, I know how important modifications to risk factors are, and I know how important education is in helping to treat urinary incontinence, but I also know how extremely important promoting physical activity is. We have the highest quality evidence demonstrating that physiotherapists can greatly improve or often cure incontinence. But I also know that this management takes time and for some women, while it might improve their leaking by 80%, sometimes they will still have leaking or there will be a subset of women that we can't help enough. This is why I feel incontinence pads and liners still have a place and I am honored to be asked to partner up with Always Discreet to help break the stigma around incontinence, empower and support women to start conversations about bladder leakage, provide the best information on management and also provide options to decrease embarrassing accidents that they may continue to have. So follow the hashtag WeAlwaysGotYou which is we, W-E-E, join in on the conversation and as professionals continue to educate women about how we can help. When I look at the bulk of all of these research studies, you know, first off, they are pretty low quality studies, most of them. Um, I wouldn't hang my hat on any of these. But what I do see is that there's no reason for people to necessarily be afraid of abdominal exercises because every study that I've seen that has included some type of abdominal strength training has had benefit. Whether or not you want to say that it's all about interrecti distance and gap size, if that's even relevant or not, but there is some kind of beneficial effect, whether it is what is, is being measured or not there are positive effects that are coming from this. And I have not seen a single thing that has shown deleterious or negative effects of including the program, uh, including strength training in the program. So all of this, um, all of these things that, that people worry about, I think are just, um, I just don't think that they're evidence-based, at least from the evidence that we have. There has been some other research that looked at modalities. So if you take an exercise program, an abdominal training program, and you do things like neuromuscular electric stim with it, if you do kinesio taping with it, um, and there, there have been about three studies that have shown positive effects of, of neuromuscular uh, electric stimulation, um, adding that on top of a abdominal training program. There was um, 
which is really still more abdominal activation and contraction. It, it's basically than just more. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's almost like the more that you do, you seem to see a little bit better results. Um, kinesio taping, there is some granted low quality evidence that uh, it, it uh, was more effective compared to just training alone. If you do kinesio taping plus abdominal strength training. Mm. Um, now, not to say that I'm a huge kinesio tape supporter, but there was like two studies. They both had positive results. So will it hurt? No. Will it help? Maybe. And they make pretty colors um, now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So that kind of summarizes the, the background literature. Um, so, you know, it is kind of suspected that abdominal strength training plays a role in all this and that it's probably beneficial. So how did we um, get to where we are? Yeah. So that's a question and I don't know for certain, but my guess is it kind of probably goes back to all the literature on transverse abdominus training that stemmed from low back research, low back pain. And as I'm sure you're aware of, there was all the work about doing transverse abdominus because there was altered firing patterns in people with low back pain for the multifidus and transverse abdominus. And I think that kind of sparked a huge interest in this deep core and this, uh, transverse abdominus and abdominal hollowing. Um, and I think that's just stuck around for a long time that we need to be targeting these. And I don't know that the evidence necessarily suggests that. Um, I don't think that it hurts. I think that all of it is good. I can't find a single bad exercise uh, when it comes to, at least when it comes to uh, DRA, the more you do seems to produce better results is what I've seen. Of course, there's caveats to that. A Sorry, lot of do, times, do you mean you haven't seen a single bad exercise in the literature or just kind of generally as a whole? In the literature. Yeah. There has been speculation that double leg raises um, could result in more doming or bulging out, but, and, and that seems like it probably should be avoided. Um, I wouldn't suggest aiming for it, but at the same time, that's never been validated by a study. There's never been a study suggesting that if you do these types of things, that it will make the separation worse. That evidence doesn't exist and it's speculative, I think. Um, that said, if I saw somebody doing something and there was a bunch of doming, I probably would say, let's scale things back. But I don't think that it's something to try to create fear over. Um, and to say that this is never going to, you're never going to be the same again. I think that's, that's a, the wrong way to go about things. So when I compared the literature, to what the mainstream viewpoint on this was, I was surprised that there would seem to be a bit of a gap between, you know, what the evidence says and what's suggested in practice. No pun intended at all. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> then it made me think, well, what about physical therapy? You know, what is being done in physical therapy? How are PTs treating this in practice. And I was able to find one study, and this is the only study that's assessed current practices for treating DRA. And this was the Keeler study from 2012. What they did was they surveyed 2,200 members of the women's health section from the APTA. And they had 296 responses. So a pretty small response rate, but they found that 100% used therapeutic exercise as part of the treatment plan. 89.2% um, used general transverse abdominus training. 
82% use transverse, subtra transverse abdominals training with functional activities. 62% use the noble technique, 59% use manual therapy, and 81% used therapeutic modalities. So things like electric stim, kinesio taping, uh, dry needling, that sort of thing. What's the um, noble? So I was kind of, what's the noble technique? The noble technique is when you manually approximate or you yep. push together the two sides of the abdominal wall. Okay. Um, you can either use like a bed sheet and tie it and pull it together that way, um, which is common, or a towel, or you can push them together with your fingers. So it's and not like you binding. Do, You're physically trying to force it together. You're physically okay. pushing the muscles together. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's thought that then if you do the sit-ups or, or the crunches, I should say the crunches with manual approximation, that that will then retrain uh, the abdominals to, I guess, work in the yeah. position that you want them to be in. Um, and also, it will reduce the the bulging or the doming that could occur. Okay. So that's the noble technique. Sixty two percent use that. Fifty nine percent use manual therapy, which there's uh, I've seen no evidence, or, or there's just there just hasn't been studied um, to suggest that that would be beneficial. And eighty one percent used other therapeutic modalities. Participants averaged about one point five visits per week and 69% reported success rates between 41% and 100%, meaning that most PTs were reporting pretty reasonable or very good effects. So the physios are reporting that? This is what is being reported by physios. So they're saying, we're doing a lot of transverse abdominus training. Um, we're doing transverse abdominus training with some other functional activities and we're using the noble technique. And then we're doing manual therapy in a bunch of modalities. Um, 1.5 visits per week and a pretty high success rate being reported by the PTs. And what success did they define? What they didn't necessarily okay. define, I don't believe they did. I, hmm. If they did, I just can't remember it, but I don't think there was a clear definition of what okay. that meant. Yep. I think it was more of a, you know, based on, you know, what you remember, like how, how would you, would you say you were successful? Yeah. Yeah. Now this is kind of where my study came in was because I realized that this Keeler study on current practices and it wasn't really current. It's almost a decade old now. And, you know, transverse abdominus training has been starting to, I think be, um, used less i think more evidence comes coming out that you know maybe it's really not necessary to do that all the time um so i figured you know maybe some of these things have changed like let's reassess current practices but i also didn't want to just repeat the same study i wanted to also measure satisfaction from a patient's perspective and not just the pt's perspective because a pt if they're measuring success success based on gap size in an abdominal crunch position, is that translating to patient satisfaction and how they perceive the success? So I wanted to see how the two compared. I also wanted to see if there was an effect on adherence. So those who were more adherent to their prescribed home exercises, do they see better results? And I also wanted to see what factors correlated with adherence. So um, to do this, I used a validated tool called the Exercise Adherence Rating Scale. Um, this was uh, validated by, by Newman Baynard um, a few years back. And so I, I, I wanted to use something that I knew was going to be accurate. And so, you know, basically that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to measure, remeasure current practices, look at adherence and look at satisfaction, but do this from a patient perspective instead of the PTs. What was really interesting, there was a lot of interesting things in here. And I also asked a lot of open-ended questions because I wanted to 
to really get an idea of where the patient's heads are at with this. And what, and what they're defining on. as success too, right? Exactly. And also what they're, what they're being told and, yeah. and, and how they're interpreting that. Um, now I'll start with current practices. Um, and so we went through the evidence, right? We said that electric stim has some evidence. Now, when I, when I asked them, you know, how many actually got electric stim, it was about 15% received electric stim. Kinesio taping about 35% received kinesio taping. Um, about 85% received pelvic floor training. And this was the most frequently, um, the most frequent thing that was performed was pelvic floor training. Um, now what's interesting though about pelvic floor training is that the, the latest study that looked at the association between DRA and pelvic floor training found that there was no association, um, which I found interesting. So 80 some percent are using pelvic floor training to treat DRA, but there may not even be an association. And that's not necessarily true in all cases. And I'm not, I'm sure you know much more about that than I would, but I found it interesting that at least it didn't line up with the evidence. Did they have concurrent um, pelvic floor issues they were trying to address at the same time? It's possible. Okay. It's yeah. possible. Um, now, 75% received some type of an abdominal strength training program. I'll get more into exactly what that consisted of in a second. 35% received general exercise. Um, about 45% received massage or trigger point treatment and about 10% received dry needling. Um, so again, there's lots of evidence to support the abdominal strength training, so that's fantastic. Um, general exercise is, of course, fine, no harm there. Um, but really no evidence really to say that massage or trigger point you know, is effective. Not to say that they shouldn't do it, um, but there, we need more research on it, that's for sure. Hmm. So let's look into what abdominal exercises were done. There were two types of exercises that eclipsed the 60%, that 60% or more received. And that was abdominal hollowing and single leg raise and lower. So these are pretty innocent exercises in that there's really, you know, it's one of those do no harm exercises. When in doubt, you can always do abdominal hollowing and single leg raise and lower. Nothing bad's going to come out of it, right? Um, and of course, we have all this anecdotal and, and uh, tr you know, traditional thought that crunches and planks and all this are bad. And what was interesting is that that's exactly what I saw. Planks, only about 20% did planks as part of their rehab. Um, about 10% did crunches, um, about 30% did side planks, about 20% did trunk twists of some kind, and about 20, uh, sorry, 15% did reverse crunches, 20% did double leg raise and lower. Um, so basically a lot of emphasis on the, the abdominal hollowing and the single leg raise and lower. And I wouldn't necessarily consider those really strength training. Mm. Um, I consider strength training more traditional strength training, more something that's scalable with intensity that you can maybe adjust to something that's a 10 rep max or so. Um, so that was interesting to me that so few were being given these exercises that the evidence is supporting. Was this just in the first two months after having a baby or was this kind of, was there a timeline? This was only people who were currently doing um, DRA rehab. So they were mm. currently seeing a PT or they had seen one within the past year. So okay. this was only 
people who had just recently undergone PT or yeah. were currently undergoing it. Yeah. And looking at what type of treatment. Um, so of course, you know, there are limitations to looking at this. Um, and when I looked at satisfaction, only about 19% were satisfied with their current or previous treatment, which was surprisingly low. And um, so to me, you know, that didn't really correlate well with what the PTs were suggesting were their, were their success rates. So PTs were reporting high success rates and, and my data seemed to say that the patient satisfaction was low. Of course, this is a different sample completely and it's hard to compare the two directly, but it's, it's still unfortunate that um, there are this low of satisfaction, even if we are looking at the worst of the worst cases. Yeah. Um, and what I did find as far as adherence goes, those who were more adherent to their prescribed program did have higher satisfaction in their treatment. Um, those who were less adherence or less adherent had worse satisfaction. And again, there was no way for me to measure directly how satisfaction compared to an objective measurement. So that was a huge limitation. Um, but what it does tell me is that, you know, we need to at least be aware of the patient's satisfaction when it comes to treatment and not just look at objective measures only. So this kind of goes back to the biopsychosocial perspective and, and making sure that we are doing our best to, to encourage um, and to do things that are going to improve adherence, to not stress the, the clients out, to not um, you know, catastrophize and to not make this seem like something that they'll never be able to overcome. Um, so, so that was, was kind of the main outcomes. I also did find significant correlations between adherence and lack of time, other commitments interfering, being too tired, um, social support from friends and family, and wanting to improve health. Those were the only things that, that were really correlated with adherence. Did you ask about um, boredom? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, but that was something that did come up in uh, some of the comments was that some of the programs were outrageously long mm. um, to like, just like hundreds of repetitions of things like transverse abdominus, uh, hol you know, abdominal hollowing. So, you know, basically what I realized is that there was really not very much consistency in treatment methods. Everybody seemed to be getting drastically different treatment um, from what I saw. But most people were getting transverse abdominus training and single leg raise and lower, neither of which are probably fantastic for really creating progressive overload to really creating um, change in, in the musculoskeletal system, right? In the strength and conditioning research, you know, to improve strength, you need a pretty significant, um, you know, you, you need to be progressively increasing weights. You need to be challenging and overloading the system. So, if we're avoiding the things that do that, and the goal is to create muscular hypertrophy of the abdominals that have been atrophied from pregnancy, yep. then are we really doing what we're trying to do in our rehab? 
Um, so, so that's kind of, that kind of summarizes, I guess, where we're at. So what do we do from here? What are your thoughts about besides where you're about to go <laughs> or what more study you're going to do? Um, how do we like, you know, we know that it can take 15 years for people to um, get information from the literature, which is why I hope the podcast at least brings that out a little bit quicker and sooner. So, mm -hmm. and I think it's so important, the work that you have done focusing on patient, patient satisfaction, because ultimately, is that not why we're doing it? Is for them? Um, um, so how do, like, what do you think the next steps should be? Like, do we, how do we, do we have to focus on different education through the university? Like, how do we get physios to, is there, is it because there's a discrepancy between physios and strength and conditioning? Like, have you worked out what to do? I think, in my opinion, anyway, I don't think that there is enough education on strength and conditioning and exercise progression and progressive overload. I mean, I have a master's degree, you know, and now a doctorate degree, and I feel like I don't even know enough about these topics. Yeah. And I've pretty much dedicated the past five years of my life to understanding, um, you know, understanding strength training and, and progressive overload and, and optimal program design and, and periodization. And I'm not even confident in my abilities in that. There's so many questions that I have. So when you consider that physical therapy school is, you know, that's a relatively small component mm. of training. Um, I think it makes it really difficult to learn enough about it in such a short amount of time. There's just too many things that physios have to learn about. And that I think, um, it, it, it's, it's definitely a problem and, and continuing education could, could help. But at the same time, there are, there are lots of great strength and conditioning professionals that, that are really good at this. And even in the strength and conditioning community, you see so much, um, you see so much fighting about these things, right? I mean, mm. nobody really knows what is best, I think, right now. And, and I can't even speak that confidently when it comes to, to diastasis, because really the research that we're relying on is pretty low quality. Um, I think we just need more research on it we don't know that much and we have to admit that we don't know that much and we have to use what little we have and, and try to try to let that influence our, our programs. And I think what the evidence does say is that we shouldn't fear exercise, that we should try to instill a sense of we're going to get back at this. We're going to get you, get you back, you know, back in the game, not, you'll never be the same, you know, you're, you're damaged now. And, and that's what people were saying. Um, I have a quote here. I know the muscles are not harmonizing like they should be. I was given exercises. I didn't have the right setup or environment for. I'm committed to getting stronger because I'm terrified of the alternatives dysfunctional pelvic core, a damaged pelvic core, worsening of it all during my future pregnancy, not being able to CrossFit or push myself in exercise again. I've seen improvement and that keeps me going. So when I read these quotes, I mean, it's just heartbreaking that this is the thought process of so many people and that that just doesn't have a shred of evidence to back it up. I don't know where the whole, I guess I understand where do's and don'ts kind of originate from, but perpetuating that fear that then again can make people um, go down really, you know, into dark places. Like that's where I go, okay, how do we, how do we stop that? 
um, besides looking at the literature and doing studies to kind of prove what we always thought was kind of right, it's then going, okay, well, how do we make sure all the women, you know, out in the world understand that it's okay to move and do these things. And you touched on it earlier and I loved it where you like, we don't have research saying the doming and, you know, something separating is necessarily inherently bad. You wouldn't continue pushing somebody through it, but if it happens now and then it doesn't mean you're broken and you're going to fall apart. But I think exactly. that's the message you, people You find get. things that you can do and you, and you, you figure out a path to, to progress and, the more optimistic and supportive we can be and reassuring the better outcomes and, and the better satisfaction that we're going to have, mm. whether or not it's objectively measurable is not necessarily the most important thing. It's yeah. how they feel that makes the biggest difference. This is perfect. So can you implement everything that you have been, um, learning and working on into what you're educating? Like, is that part of what you're teaching at all? So I, I teach muscle physiology. I teach biomechanics and a variety of different kinesiology and, and also intro to health courses. So unfortunately, I don't actually get to teach anything on this topic. Um, I think having, you know, an understanding of muscle physiology and really looking at things down to a molecular level yeah. has has been helpful, you know, and I think some of those kind of more foundational topics tend to get overlooked and we, we focus on the wrong things sometimes when, when I think sometimes the answers are, are, are more obvious than we make them out to be. We're so obsessed with interacty distance in the literature when, when in reality, we should probably go back to some older studies, some more traditional research and, and see that just strengthening the abdominal wall is going to result, if, if we have hypertrophy of the abdominal wall, it's probably gonna result in structural changes to like the linea alba. You know, if we look at the tendon research, for example, you're, you're gonna see structural changes in the tendons the more that you hypertrophy uh, the surrounding musculature. And it takes usually like 70 to 80% of of one RM loads or a lot of volume to really structurally change connective tissue. Yeah, 10 reps lying on your back with a leg lift is probably not enough load or volume to make. <laughs> and for some any people, it might be too much, right? Yeah, and yeah. some people, it's like this is doing nothing. And you also have to consider the mind muscle connection. You know, so there's just so many components and I just hope that we can continue to advance the research in this area. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to support the podcast and have access to some extra episodes, you can head over to the pelvic health podcast .com and click on the little green button, become a patron and you can choose to pledge $1 or $2 US per month. You can cancel at any time. So you can even do $1, have access for the month to all of the extra episodes and then come back at another time.